Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. It's hard to mistake James Taylor's voice. It's sweet and sounds carefree. And if you know the Cliff Notes version of James's life, that kind of makes sense. Summers in Martha's Vineyard as a kid, signed by the Beatles to Apple Records at only 19 years old, relationships with Joni Mitchell and Carly Simon. Becoming one of the premier singer-songwriters of the 70s, when competition was stiff. But these autobiographical details and his sweet voice belie the traumatic events of his early days. Two stints in a mental institution, heroin addiction, an alcoholic father. This is the life James attempts to make sense of in his new audio memoir, Breakshot. All of which he traces back to a traumatic family event he says left the Taylors cursed. When Malcolm Gladwell and James Taylor got together to talk about his new memoir, they dove into these darker memories from James's past and how his songwriting started as a form of therapy. They also discuss why James feels his last five albums have been his absolute best work, including his latest, American Standard. His new album's out February 28th and is full of the songs James heard growing up. Songs that offered him refuge, songs that ultimately offered him a new life through music. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Malcolm Gladwell and James Taylor from GSI Studios in New York. What I wanted to start with, the most unexpected fact that came up as I was preparing, which was Taylor Swift is named for you. <laughs> yes, that, that was a surprise to me too. Um, we first met at a 
a benefit for an organization that is meant to mitigate uh, teenage pregnancy. And uh-huh. and uh, she was doing a couple of songs, and so was I. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> she told me at that point, that was before she, you know, was uh, such a success. But yeah. makes me wonder how many tailors out there have you inadvertently spawned? It's <laughs> a, a good question. Uh, um, so I, I, the, I was listening to Breakshot, your Audible original, um, which I thought was fascinating. So your, your dad grows up in... Uh, Morganton, North Carolina. And your mom is a New Englander. I kind of put a real... You're saying grew up as a fisherman's daughter in... Newburyport, so a real New Englander. That's right. Your parents married in what year? They married in 40, well, probably in 1947. 47, yeah. yeah. So in 1947, that would be right. They would have, that's what I mean. One, your your father, a Southerner, your mother, a New Englander. Those are distinct identities in that. They are, they are. I mean, they were politically very aligned, but they mm. They were from two different cultures. But my father was, you know, the thing is really about him is that he he didn't belong, you know, in, uh, I think that that he, he didn't really, he identified uh, sort of as we identify our, our context, uh, he identified that as being Southern, but I don't think he felt a part of anything really. I think he was yeah. quite... Um, quite isolated it's sort of it's the i think that's the key to to uh, understanding my father is that, yeah. that that he was uh, he never really had a, a context in which he felt he belonged and you know that changed over time but i, I i'm pursuing this both because this is the a big part of breakshot this memoir that you've done but also because it so obviously feeds into a lot of your uh, music. Um, but I wanted to sort of linger a little bit about your, you tell this story, can you tell the story in the book? It's the most, one of the most heartbreaking stories I think I've ever heard about your, uh, your grandfather. I think it's my great-grandfather. Great, that's right, great Well, grandfather. you mean the, the one who delivered my exactly. father, right? Yeah. Well, my grandmother, uh, biologically, was a woman from Springfield named Theodosia Haynes, and she met uh, met Alexander Taylor, my grandfather, and uh, the two of them uh, um, fell in love, and uh, she got pregnant. They married, and the child was delivered uh, by um, my grandfather's father, my great grandfather. And uh, he hadn't uh, delivered a child for a, for a while, and and I think uh, after the the birth of my father, um, she contracted uh, what was called childbirth fever, but it was really just an infection, you know. Just uh, uh, it was this was pre antibiotics, and and she died. Uh, and and the the great grandfather, my great grandfather, who delivered her, was dead within. Two months, and I think the assumption is that that he m- may have suicided. You know, so um, so my father uh, really, like his mother, went went to uh, the family because uh, my grandfather Alexander just 
fell apart, really, mm. and descended into um, alcoholism, which was, there was a lot of addiction in the family. Uh, yes, it was a, a tragic start, and I think it, it, it gave my father the sense that, that his position was very conditional, mm. you know, that he didn't really uh, have a secure place in the world and that his performance was going to really, you know, that was, that was going to be the thing that, that allowed him, you know, a place in the lifeboat. In, in Breakshot, you talk about a lot about how that's almost like the original sin of the Taylors, that it casts a shadow, a multi-generational shadow on the family. It does. It's like ripples, and they spread out. And I think the thing manifested when my dad, you know, he had, he had five kids in really in six years. And uh, uh, we all, as, as we um, entered adolescence and the prospect of uh, leaving home, I think that my dad just uh, was out of his depth. I think it, it was something that he just didn't know how to, how to deal with. It also coincided with his, his drinking uh, becoming, you know, alcoholism progresses. My father is an extremely functional alcoholic for many, many years. But ultimately that, you know, that you lose control of that eventually. And, um, and that happened around the same time. So my parents' marriage also fell apart at that, that time. And the culture was, uh, was the Vietnam um, baby boom culture of 1968 or 66, you know, it was, it was, uh, Everybody was was questioning their connections and their context, and the and the thought was uh, was abroad in the land that we change everything, you know, that it would all mm-hmm. that that there was a distinct interruption, you know, discontinuation with the last with the World War II um, mentality of that generation, and and we were a new generation that was really going to change things. And there were so many of us at the same time. So you know, all of these things happened at once. Uh, and and I, my own personal story is that I sort of had a breakdown. You know, I just couldn't go forward, and I sort of had a crisis there, and it precipitated in my siblings a, a similar. A similar sort of derailment, and how many of your siblings end up? You and how many of your siblings end up institutionalized? Two of them, two, two others. But my older brother really should have. He was, he was the ultimately the sacrifice. My brother Alex. Yeah. yeah. So you, you spend ten months at McLean Hospital, um, and once again we're, as you point out, McLean Hospital is where Robert Lowell went, where uh, Anne Sexton was teaching poetry classes, you said at some point. Sylvia Plath worked there. Yes. Um, I mean, the list is kind of like, <laughs> it's it's a kind of another, you know, there's there's a series of these kind of um, sort of iconic set pieces. Right, it's in like your, a nexus. Of, yeah. Yeah, it's true. There, I, I never had, I didn't think about it at the time, but it, it sort of was where one went, you know, if you had a breakdown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was Harvard Medical School and uh, and Mass General Hospital. Yeah. 
Did you, I was curious about in those, so you had this very tumultuous teenage, late teenage years where you're, you leave North Carolina, you go to boarding school for a while, then you have your breakdown, you go back to North Carolina, then you finish school at Milton Academy. Were you writing music in that period? What, what's, what was your musical identity in those years? Yeah, I, w- I was starting to. Well, when I went home to North Carolina for that junior year, I was in a band with my brother Alex. But before then, on Martha's Vineyard, it would had been the middle of what a friend of mine calls the folk scare of the of the early '60s. You know, so folk music was the uh, sort of thing on campuses, and it and it was, you know, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and the Kingston Trio and Peter Paul and Mary, and you know th- that. Uh, but also Odetta and Lightning Hopkins and uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and Jesse Lone Cat Fuller and Reverend Gary Davis. You know, a, there was country blues in there as well. So on Martha's Vineyard in the summertime, it, it was easy to, to uh, pick up a guitar and learn from other people who were around and uh, and to find people to sing with and play with. And there were open mics at a various... Couple, mm. A couple of coffee houses, they were called. But is what's the function of? Am I reading too much into it? Does but is music, does does music have a kind of psychological function for you in that sort of troubled moment? Is it your own personal therapy as you deal with all of this? Yeah, without a doubt, I I think that probably a good deal of what art is, if this can be called art, it's a commercial art. Uh, is you know is a kind of uh, therapy or a way of getting something uh, insoluble that's inside just in front of you somehow you know it's like you know I was a cutter when I was a when I was a teenager and it's almost like that you sort of want to see the scar uh, so music uh, definitely started to me to. Uh, you know, it was always a celebratory thing. There was that was the main thing about it is that it was fun and joyful. But when I started to write, I started to write from a, a sort of a therapeutic place, mm-hmm. I guess, and and that's what I'm known for is sort of yeah. that that kind of. Uh, I mean, people who go into my stuff in any depth realize that that's just a corner of it, but. But it was the thing that really resonated with people when when fire and rain took off. Yeah. yeah. I guess my question, and this is an unanswerable question, but a fun one, and nonetheless, had your mother, Trudy, married a prosperous, happy New England merchant, and had that been the version of your life, are you a musician or are you something else? No, I mean, uh, I, there was no. My my mother had studied voice. She sort of was the last generation that went to finishing schools, and she went to a school in Boston called Mrs. Child's School on on Beacon Hill, and those women were learning to be wives. It was sort of pre Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know. Mm-hmm. It was pre. My mother could see. Could see the the promised land, but but she, you know, and was frustrated, and you know, so she had children, and 
um, and was a, a basically a sort of a faculty wife, which was a it was a job really. But uh, when I, you know, so in the summertime I had been playing the guitar and and getting into blues and folk music. I I met my friend Danny Korchmar, who uh, Cooch, who uh, was to be for my whole life, a, a major connection for me musically. And uh, he introduced me to a lot of the music that, that I was, has been a source to me. So there, there was this musical life on the vineyard. Then when I went home to North Carolina, I was in a band with my brother Alex and I played the electric guitar. And we basically were, uh, we played fraternity parties. We played- What were you playing? What kind of music? Well, it was called beach music. And what it was was uh, the music that uh, Southern college students loved when they went to Virginia Beach or Myrtle Beach or mm-hmm. or Wrightsville Beach when they took their spring break and they went to party on the on the coast. Uh, that was the music. So, what kind of can, can you remember any of the songs? I've never heard that term before. A song like uh, "Shotgun" by Junior Walker and the All Stars. Uh, That's beach music. Yeah. It was very close to the to the Chitlin circuit. Oh, you know? I see. Those acts that could work that circuit could also do the beach circuit. It yeah. was a place where race is mixed to a certain extent, a limited extent, and that's what my brother Alex got into. You know, he just loved that that we, music. Anyone who heard it loved it. You know, yeah. it was just it was great. Like, uh, you know, that song uh, "A Searching" by the Coasters. Uh, that was called. That was a song called "Searching," and it was the first soul music that I ever heard. I was in a bus going uh, from a camp in uh, in the mountains of North Carolina to uh, Tennessee over the border, and uh, the bus driver had a, a like a, a I don't know if it was the car radio or if it was a transistor or what it was, but it was playing that song, and I just it was like it it was like somebody you know, carbonated my blood, you know, uh-huh. it was just amazing, yeah. Was it unusual for for white people to be playing that music in that part of North Carolina at that point? I mean, was your brother, was your band with your brother an oddity or was it commonplace? Well, there was only, there was only one among high school students in our town, mm-hmm. so in the town of Chapel Hill. And for that reason, we got work. We weren't very good, but we were... You know, so that was a, a big influence. Folk music first, then beach music, uh, my brother's music. And then after McLean, I, I came to New York and started uh, uh, playing here in town for, for about a year. Uh, we had a band called The Flying Machine. And uh, it, it just, we, we just couldn't compete. We we petered out. We you had to get a record contract in those days, and mm-hmm. and we did sign one. Much to my chagrin, years later, when when it turned out I'd also signed a publishing contract, but we were in their hands, and they gave us two days in the studio, and that's it. You know, we what, just what kind of music was that? You know, it was funny. It 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 started by we sort of identified as a blues band, but you know we realized. That was sort of inappropriate. We were sub- essentially suburban kids, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we loved the music. 
But we also played uh, Hoagy Carmichael songs. We played um, God Bless the Child, the Billie Holiday tune. Uh-huh. And so we, we had odd material, yeah. you know. And I wrote a couple of songs for that. I wrote a, a tune called uh, Night Owl, I'm a Night Owl. And I wrote a song called uh, Brighten Your Night With My Day. I, I cringe to think of it, but there it is. <laughs> uh, and, uh, um, you know, we, we tried our best. We, were, we got a job as the house band at a club called uh, The Night Owl at McDougal and, and Third. That's so it, the heart of the village, yeah. Just down to, yeah. But this is a, a little bit after Dylan's after gone. Dylan has left, um, and uh, as Stephen Stills had, had gone to the coast and started Buffalo Springfield. That was also, you know, that was a, you know, an example of what we were aspiring to. But our record deal was a dead end, and um, it basically killed us. We were assigned to people who wouldn't record us, so. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty, yeah. That was the end is of the there, band. Is there anything that you wrote in those years that you feel like stands with some of your best work? Do Do you look back fondly on anything from that and say, you know what, that was a that was really the beginning of what I really stand for? You know, I wrote a song called "I'm a Night Owl" that I think was the best thing I wrote in those days, just as a song, the way it was constructed, mm-hmm. and and you know, and it 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 had a feel to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was good. And and I've often thought that I'd like to, you know, try to cut that. Yeah. Recut How it. How did it go? Oh, it was, you know, a fish likes the water. That's where he's going to be. A monkey lives on fruits and bananas, so he lives in the top of a tree. But my eyes are made for darkness, so the nighttime's right for me. I'm a night owl. Most folks like the daytime. They like to see the shining sun. They're up in the morning, often run until they're too tired to have any fun but when the when the sun goes down and the bright lights shine my daytime has just begun I'm a night owl close those curtains for me honey uh, it's just about to make me blind uh, anyway Wait, it, can, I, can it, I just point out that you are reciting from memory a song written uh, over 50 years ago and you must have written in the course of your life how many songs how many I think it's probably approaching 150 now. Maybe yeah. it's more. Maybe it's more like 200 yeah. now. But it's pretty impressive. Peter. You know, it's a funny thing. I think that for me, um, anything that has music connected to it, I can remember. I don't know any Italian, but I can sing. I can sing La Donna Mobile because you know I learned it in Italian, and it's just because the there's music attached to it, it sticks in my mind. Yeah. In fact, I think that that's why. Uh, people, when they learn English, uh, w- why English songs, English popular music is so useful to them, you know, that that a lot of people have told me, you know, I learned English by mm-hmm. by listening to, to English lyrics. Yeah. yeah. Who, but to go back to, so we're talking about what years now that you are, what year are you in, are you in Greenwich Village playing in those clubs? Well, um, that's 19... 19- uh, 66. 66. I'm 18 years old. You're 18 years old. When you look back on that year, I know you you fall back into drugs, or fall into drugs, I guess, for the first time. Um, but do you have, is the, does the, is the year in your memory chaotic? Is it a pleasant memory? I mean, how do you kind of look back on that? Oh, inter- it, it was great. 
You know, the whole thing was, it was a, a riot. You know, I was free. I was 18 and living in New York City. The drinking age was 18 at that point. So Where were you living? We lived in the Albert Hotel, which okay. was at uh, on University at 11th Street. It was below, just below Union Square. Mm-hmm. And the, there was a, a, one of the floors of the hotel had burned. You know, there'd been a serious fire. But there was one room that had survived it, but they couldn't rent it, really rent it. But they rented it to me and the bass player, my, my best friend, Zach Wiesner, who I knew from the vineyard. Zach and I took that sort of a suite of rooms for, for just uh, for almost no money. I mean, mm-hmm. and uh, we rehearsed in the basement of the Albert Hotel. So that was where I lived first. And then I, you know, I, I would crash at different people's places too. And uh, eventually I got a, an apartment on 84th and Columbus, which in those days was, rough. you know, it was, yeah, it was a rough neighborhood. Yeah. And, um, and it you, was, uh, you know, it was a, a cheap rent. What are you doing all? That's a real question, but what are you doing all day at that age in, in New York City? Well, you get up late and you go to work at the Night Owl Cafe, which is where our gig was. And yeah. that was six days a week. So From when to when? Well, probably from seven o'clock till midnight. Yeah. Three, four, five sets we would do. People would come in, they'd ha- order a hamburg and a cup of coffee or something they didn't have a liquor license and uh you know we play a 20 minute set and there was no backstage to speak of there was like a closet where mm-hmm. where we could hang out or in the kitchen mm-hmm. but um I mean, are you are you writing how much music are you writing in those years i'm starting to write now but uh like that night owl song is written in that in that era yeah it is yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the the guy who ran the club, it's a labor of love. I don't know why he did it. He did it because he loved the music, I think, and just wanted to be part of the life because it, you know, it wasn't a living for mm-hmm. the guy. We were making like less than $100 a week for each of us. But you could live on that then. Yeah. It was amazing that you could live on that. But, you know... The uh, subway still wasn't a quarter. It was still a dime to ride the subway. So $100 could go a certain distance. Yeah. Sure. In those days. And, you know, we they also fed us dinner. I mean, free, free hamburgs at the, yeah. at the night owl. So really, rent was the only consideration. The, um, so you're, things get bad, and, you're, and then your father comes and rescues you, which was an incredibly touching moment given how troubled your relationship was with him and how troubled your family life was. He drives from North Carolina to New York. He did. He, I called home. The, the flying machine had, had disbanded. You know, I had a, a, a habit, a, a heroin addiction, that I was, it really was going to get me in trouble sometime very soon. You know, because I no longer was in contact with with Joel O'Brien, who was my had been my sort of source and a sort of safe way to get into the to to get access to the to the drug. But b- being an eighteen year old kid on the street trying to hustle enough to to uh, to have a habit, 
was going to really get me in trouble soon. There's no question about it. And my father really did. It was like the cavalry coming over the hill. Mm-hmm. I think he sensed it. Um, I called him up. He said, how are you doing? I said, you know, Dad, not so good. And he just said, um, where are you? I told him the address, 84th and Columbus. He said, uh, don't move. He said, stay right there. Do not leave the apartment. So, uh, you know, I, I went home to North Carolina, and I stayed there for about six months, and then I, I went to England. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you serendipitously get in touch with someone who is involved with Apple Records. That, that's right. You see, um, my friend uh, Cooch, Danny Korchmar, who had been the other guitar in the, in the Flying Machine and who I'd known from Martha's Vineyard, and we, we played, he had you know, introduced me to the blues and uh, some Latin music and stuff. And uh, he had, in the year before the, the Flying Machine, he had been with a group called the King Bees, much better name. And the King Bees uh, uh, had backed up Peter and Gordon, uh, an English group, a duo. Uh, I don't care what they say, I won't stay in a world without love. That was uh, one of their hits. And another uh, McCartney uh, song called uh, Night in Rusty Armor. But uh, Peter was... Uh, Jane Asher's sister, who was Paul McCartney's uh, uh, girlfriend, you know, sort of steady uh, girl for a while there. And Peter had, as chance would have it, he had just accepted a job at the Beatles' brand new record label, uh, Apple Records. And, uh, and his job was basically to find and sign other acts to mm-hmm. the label. Uh, so... When I called Cooch, when I got to London and really started getting serious about somebody hearing my music and maybe making a record, uh, I called Cooch back in the States and said, have you still got a number for Peter Asher from Peter and Gordon? And he said, I got a number. I don't know if it's any good, but it turned out it was. And, and Peter was just at the right, the right person to call at the right time. He heard my stuff and liked it, and he took me to... Apple Records, where I uh, auditioned for Paul McCartney and George Harrison. And they said, uh, Peter, if you want to make a record with this guy, uh, let's this sign is him. Incredible. How, how old are you at this point? At this point, I'm 19. You're 19 years old. Hmm. You have just had this kind of disastrous ending to your time in New York. And then within six months or a year, you are auditioning for Paul McCartney and George Harrison. An, an incredible, uh, just a, a the mother of all lucky breaks, you know, just exactly what you. Wait, so how did it happen? You go over to your 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 where is it again? Where is the Apple Studios? It's in. Um... Uh, they were that well. Eventually, they were in Savile Row. But when yeah. I went there in in uh, early January of 1968, uh, they were at uh, Baker Street. Yeah. Uh, and um, it was a sort of rented office space. And as soon as they uh, bought a building in Savile Row, uh, that's that's where they moved. But the, uh, you know, it was, uh, I just couldn't believe it. I, I went along with Peter and uh, we went up into these offices and I met a number of people who were, seemed really nice. And it was all, you know, quite amazing. And he 
Peter remembers it as uh, uh, leaning out into the hall and, and just saying, is there a beetle in the house? <laughs> and, and there was. And there was. There were two. Two. And they, they came down, and we walked into a room, and I, uh, I can't remember it really very well. because What did was, you play? I played something in the way she moves. And why did you them. choose that? Was at, that, at the moment that was your you considered to be your best song? Yes, I yeah. thought it was probably it was probably the best one I had. We'll be back with more of James Taylor's Beatle audition after the break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to three percent daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position: warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer, yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with Malcolm and James Taylor. Before the break, James was telling Malcolm about his audition with Paul McCartney and George Harrison and producer Peter Asher, where he played the group Something in the Way She Moves. Wait, so they, so they listen and they say, do you remember? They, they said to Peter, uh, you know, I think Peter went out of the room with them. They said, mm, very nice, very nice, and left the room and... Uh, Peter said, well, what do you think? And he said, sounds good to me. Uh, 
do you do you want to record him? Peter said, yeah, I'll I'll produce him. As and they said, okay, that. yeah. Simple as that. One of the great job interviews of all time, can I point out? I I <laughs> I think so. You know, an actual It's like a fantasy of a job interview. Yeah. An, <laughs> an actual, you know, uh, Apple only lasted for a very short time, less than a in a year, really. Yeah. Uh, because Alan Klein had convinced Yoko and John that that he should manage them, because uh, after Epstein died, there really was a a great uh, you know gap, mm-hmm. and, and no question about it, uh, Apple was badly run and it was hemorrhaging money and. But, you know, there were a number of people signed to it. Billy Preston, myself, uh, Mary Hopkin, um, Jackie Lomax, uh, the, the Modern Jazz Quartet. But Alan Klein came in and, and wasn't interested in any of that, you know. And our contract said that we could audit him. He didn't want to be audited. So, um, you know, McCartney didn't, you know, had been warned off him by a number of people, including the Rolling Stones, who... Uh, who had had a disastrous uh, uh, time with Alan Klein, but he was just one of these pirates who who manages to convince people. And um, John and Yoko uh, went for it. So uh, it it was probably like the death knell for the for the Beatles. But he closed down Apple, and and Peter um, mm-hmm. he he I I had left London to go back to the States and I was trying to clean up. I was trying to, to get to, uh, to shake my, my habit again. And, um, uh, Peter called up while I was in a institution back, back in the Berkshires actually, where I live now. And, uh, he said, well, this place is finished. He said, and we're out of the contract because, uh, Alan Klein will not be audited. So, that was it. He said, uh, yeah, I'm going to move. He said, I'm moving to Los Angeles. And what do you say? I, I find us a record company and, and, and I'll be your manager. Yeah. And I said, hmm, sounds good. And I, I called Paul uh, McCartney and asked him if he thought Peter would be a good manager. And Paul said, yeah, I do. I think he'd be Wait, you good. Paul McCartney's number? I guess Just... I did. Maybe <laughs> that... Peter gave it to me, you know? Yeah. Could I say your charmed life? Your life is both not charmed and insanely charmed. Oh, it's 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 totally charmed. Yeah, all right. and it's it's, it's been all you know the the only parts about it that are bad are are totally my fault. I mean, just yeah. because I have this mangled eye that that sees everything, you know, uh, as as being a uh, a drag. But but in fact, uh, it's just been a gift from from start to finish. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Wait, there's a little stray detail that confused me because, so your song was called Something in the Way She Moved. Yes, Something in the Way She Moves, yeah. Something in the Way She Moves. So George Harrison, does he write his song after hearing yours? Yeah. Does he, does he, does he own up? Does he say he was inspired you know, by it? I don't think he, he really remembered my song. I think he remembered the line, there's something in the way she moves. Yeah. And, and uh, he liked that line. Um, but I don't think he, uh, he, I don't think he really, it was some months later. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, you know, that the, the Beatles song. Uh, yeah. Uh, 
I took that from the... Oh, see, so it's all karma. Yeah, it's all, it's all just goes around. And, yeah. and I just, I, I looked at it as, as a real, you know, the thought that, that he, he might have, that I might have inspired it. A, a George Harrison song was, was enough for me. That was great. Yeah, yeah. And in, in Breakshot, you're fast, fast forwarding about the strange set of coincidences that surround and that surround the death of John Lennon. And I was so, I mean, the whole thing is just so, you wouldn't, you couldn't make this up. So you, so you. Well, you couldn't make Trump up for Christ's sake. Well, you know? yes, couldn't make, uh, there are many things in our world now, but, but you're, you, at that point, living just a few blocks from John Lennon on Central Park West, I'm assuming. No, not a few blocks. I was living one street up, um, yeah. One, one, and I, my window on the sixth floor of uh, apartment six S at at the Langham, which is the building uptown from the from the Dakota, that looked out on Seventy Third Street and the back of uh, of the Dakota with a sort of a an arch that gave way into the archway. Didn't reach all the way to street level, but it. It was an archway into uh, uh, the courtyard of the of the Dakota. So when John was shot, I was I was in the window, you know, just just uh, talking to someone on the phone, and I heard the I heard the shots, you know, I heard. I, and then I, the day was it the day before you would run into this strange character on the subway? Yeah. Who wait? Describe tell that's, you know, just this this sort of sweaty. Obviously, either coked up or or uh, or on speed or or on some combination or in a manic break or something. This guy had sort of fastened onto me as we both left the subway station at Seventy Second Street, which is right there at Dakota. And I was walking up one block to my door. And uh, and he just uh, was in my face talking to me about this and that and John Lennon this and and you know his his music and uh, and he has plans for this and he wants to do that and I just like you know the guy was face was glistening with sweat you know it was just uh, you know the picture of someone who was manic you know mm. and and just uh, flying and I just you know scraped him off and got out of there. And it was Mark David Chapman. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Wow. Couldn't couldn't believe it. The yeah. next day, I was talking to Peter Asher's wife out on the West Coast. And she said, I don't know if it was the, the uh, if it was the Manson trials or if if maybe uh, um, uh, the one of the Manson um, uh, crew had tried to shoot um uh, President Ford or something like that, but uh, Squeaky From Squeaky From, right? Squeaky. Yeah. Anyway, um, she said things are crazy out here on the West Coast. You know, it just feels so strange in Los Angeles. You know, the the all the the Manson stuff coming up and stuff. And I said, you think it's strange there? I just heard the police shoot somebody on the street. You know, and uh, she said, "What? Well, how do you know that?" I said, "Well, it sounded like a thirty-eight. It was five shots in a row, which is, you know, the police, I've been told that that's what a police shooting is, that they empty the gun 
and uh, that they keep an empty chamber under the hammer. And so I, I was sure that it was a police shooting. And uh, uh, she said, wow. And we said goodbye and hung up and rung off. And like 20 minutes later, she called me back and said, that wasn't a police shooting. That was John Lennon. Oh. Yeah. Just a half hour later or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just amazing. They had already heard about it, but, you know. Um, so, it, yeah, it was, uh, I had visited Yoko and John at the, at the Dakota at one point, and I think they invited me over because they wanted, uh, Allen Ginsberg wanted to talk to me about some songs that he had written, and he was there. But, you know, I, I didn't know what to make of his lyrics or, or, mm -hmm. and I really wasn't interested in, in collaborating, you know, and I yeah. just, it was a beautiful, you know, an odd, oddly decorated, but, you know, by what standards, I don't know, but it was, you know, it was a, uh, amazing to be in their apartment. Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'd been in other apartments in that building before I'd looked at, at uh, Leonard Bernstein's apartment, which was on the market, and um, my wife and I were were looking for a place then, but uh, you know it was out of our league. So um, that's the only time I I visited them there. Mm -hmm. But I was I was perched in my window when the shots rang out. Wow. Oh. I wanted to touch on a couple of other things about <clears throat> about songwriting. Um, I would be remiss, you know. Here I am, a few feet from one of the great songwriters of the last. You're kind to say that thing. Uh, so I, I feel I have to. One of the things I read that fascinated me was that you often begin to compose on the piano, and then go, because I, you know, we always imagine people like yourself in the room with your guitar, strumming away. But you, when did you start doing that? And what's the advantage of doing it that way? Um, on the piano? Yeah. Uh, well, it's just a slightly different, you know, uh, it's often the case that you'll, you'll sit down and you'll, you'll be playing like a, a, just a, a little, you know, change that comes to mind. And then that will suggest to you, to you a, a sort of a lyric or, mm -hmm. um, uh, let's see. And likewise, uh, if you, uh, a, a sort of scrap of melody and a, and a little bit of lyric will will uh, happen in the context of those little wheels that you're playing, and that will you know sort of ignite a song, mm -hmm. and uh, and that can also happen when you're sitting at the piano, like um, you know just I'm very I'm a I can't I can't claim to play the, the piano at all, but I've written. Um, I've written a number of songs on the piano, and, and then uh, uh, I sort of explain them to a piano player, and and uh -huh. uh, and let go of it, you know. And he'll change the key. I can only play in uh, in uh, uh, C. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's, I'm a bit rusty even at that. But that that's a tune called "Shed a Little Light," written on the occasion of Martin Luther King's uh, uh, birthday, and. Um, See, that was shed, shed a Little Light. Shed a Little Light. So I'm just curious about what is it you're hearing on the piano that you that you can't hear on the 
guitar or can't do on the guitar enough. No, it's, it really is what I can manage to do with my fingers and the sound that it makes that, that comes back to me. It's a feedback thing. And, you know, suddenly I'm, you know, trying to construct a, a, a little melody on the, on the piano that I, that I like. You know, it'll. I'll. I'll record that. I'm. I'm always uh, traveling with something. Well, now that our phones are are these great recorders, um, I don't have to carry one anymore. But I used to always carry a little digital pocket recorder. And if I have an idea or a lyrical idea while I'm walking on the street, or a, a melody comes to mind, I'll I'll whistle it into the thing, and and then I'll. I'll, when it comes time to really get serious about working stuff, I'll I'll look back through all of these things and find things to work on, things to elaborate on, or mm-hmm. things that will fit together and and make a make a piece. And and so with the piano, it's really just sitting down at it and playing what occurs to me. But it's a combination of what you know. It's always in the key of C. It's a very it's very pros. It's very prescribed, prescribed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in, other, in other words, it's it's extremely limited, and uh, and so is the guitar. Really, I mean, I'm I'm not a chromatic. Uh, uh, I'm not free up the neck with the guitar that you know. I, I change capo position so that I can play in a different key, or so I can use a fingering up a whole step so it'll be in B and that's more comfortable for some songs. So it's these limitations really that contain it. You know, I don't know what I'd do if I were absolutely chromatically free to do whatever I wanted. I'm, I'm really dependent upon my, mm-hmm. my, uh, my limits, the limits of my vocabulary, uh, musical vocabulary, the limits of my voice, you know, these, yeah. these things... Um, really put it into a shape and a recognizable one after a while. And, you know, I think the same thing happens lyrically that I keep going back to familiar uh, topics like um, I have a number of songs I've written about my dad, a couple about my mom. I have uh, songs that are like hymnals, uh, hymns for agnostics, spiritual songs that that are looking for some kind of spiritual connection. Uh, mm-hmm. I have, uh, I have, you know, I have uh, love songs that I that I now write mostly to my wife. Uh, so then there's celebratory songs and occasionally a, a political song a little bit. Um, but I keep coming back to the same. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like my my limitations are. Are really the containers that uh, the juice gets poured into, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We'll be right back with more of Malcolm's conversation with James Taylor. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. 
With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. We're back with more from James Taylor. What song of yours do you think has been overlooked? There are a lot. Can you pick one? Uh, Never Die Young. It's Enough to Be On Your Way. Um, um, if I Keep My Heart Out of Sight. God Have Mercy on the Frozen Man, the song There We Are. 
I I believe that the I've written my best work in the in the past five albums. In the album, that's that's why I'm here. Um, Hourglass, uh, New Moonshine, uh, October Road, and uh, Before This World. Um, I believe that that I've written my best work, my best songs, and it just happens to be out of what people mm-hmm. uh, are familiar with for, for my work. And uh, I think that, that I do have uh, uh, an audience that knows those songs, but um, it, they, they're not... Uh, you know, they're not the money songs. How does the act of songwriting change as you, as mm, you get older? That's a really good question. It has less urgency to it, and it's being, you feel less like it's being extruded from you, like it's got to get out, you know. Like, scratch the surface anywhere, and, and a song will come out. And it's more like uh, um, the urgency leaves, and it becomes more of a craft and you you get you, you you become better at the just the process you know the you develop a method and you are more demanding in terms of the structure of it and the form of it there was a long gap between um october road and before this world what what was happening in that period Those are the two... Yeah, you know... Uh, those are your two last original songs of original music. That's so right. 2002 and 2015? Is yeah, that when? that's yeah. right. Yeah. It may have been... Uh, and wait, and... But wait, before you answer... 2003 and 2014, but yeah. Yeah. And Before This World was your first number one album? Yes, it was, yeah. Isn't it extraordinary? Well... It is, although uh, you know nowadays uh, album sales are, are are way off because people don't buy music really anymore yeah. in the same way. Still, <clears throat> come on. But it is no, it's remarkable, and what it really means is the record company finally did their job. You know, yeah. they finally. You know, I just. You know, I I don't have very good things to say about the record business, but I do think that it's it's better it's it's better to uh, have song have music exist in a commercial world than it is to have it um, than it is to have it uh, you know to 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 be uh, dependent on the court like some yeah. minor aristocrat in in Germany somewhere to sponsor you or the church you know those yeah. are the the church, the court, and academia were the places where music used to happen, and and the marketplace is better. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. it's better. It's not great, but it's better. Wait, so what? Do, tell me what was happening in that gap. Had you were you were you giving up on songwriting? No, not at all. I've just been extremely busy. I'm I made two albums of cover songs, of yeah. songs that I that because I have this great band. It's like a musical community. And I wanted to record them. And I, I built a studio on my property, a, a big room, big wooden room. Um, and, uh, and we, we recorded a, a couple of, uh, of covers albums. Mm-hmm. So that was in there. Also, a Christmas album was in there. Oh, I see. Which I always, you know, just mm-hmm. like 
you know, as, as time goes by, your scruples kind of fall by the wayside. And I thought, you know, but the, the Christmas album was a delight to make. And uh, I, I made it with Dave Grusin, who's a great composer and arranger, and, and he produced it. And we just had a ball, you know. We, we, so there were three albums that came out, and actually a fourth uh, was um, the, the, the album from, I had a sort of theatrical piece that I did for a while, just myself and a piano player called uh, One Man Band. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, that, we released that as an album as well. So there were really, there were four projects, three or four projects between those two albums. And we were recording a lot. Yeah. And then uh, also, uh, you know, if you've got a, a family, if you have children and you're going to pay any attention to them, you, you know, you that that's a, a big demand on your time. And and also uh, just uh, touring. Touring yeah. takes a lot of time too. Yeah. So so really, there was plenty going on. Yeah. One last thing, and then I think we probably. Uh, um, Will you will you will you play something just to bring our delightful chat to a, a graceful close? You're up to you, whatever you. Well, I don't know if you know this song. Um, Woody Guthrie wrote it. You know, he he used to do commissioned songs. I think uh, "Roll On Columbia," "Roll On Your Power Is Turning Our Darkness to Dawn," "Roll On Columbia," "Roll On" was for the power company that built the the dam on the <laughs> Columbia River. Yeah, so he would, yeah, uh, you know, and he was hounded by someone that he knew who was belonged to an organization called the Ladies Auxiliary, and um, and I guess that <laughs> shut him up. Now, there, there's your song. Good. Thank you so much, James. Thank this you, has been Malcolm. an absolute delight. Thank you, sir. Thanks to James Taylor for coming on Broken Record. His new album, American Standard, is out February 28th. And his new audio memoir, Breakshot, is available on Audible now. You can hear some of James's music on a playlist we put together for this episode at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Milo Bell, and Leah Rose for Pushkin Industries. The theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators 
whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.